0: Revelation chapter eight. We are moving our way through the the book of Revelation, as uh, as you know, which, as you know, details God's judgment against the falling world fallen world. Um, this book is describing events that take place in the future. It's doing so prophetically. That's the future aspect, and it and it does so uh, symbolically because it's it's largely a vision. Um, I think I made the comment last week, so I'll just I'll just repeat it because we need to keep this in mind as we try and make sense of some of these things, most of the time when you go to a a book of the Bible, you're going to take it literally unless there's a reason to take something symbolically. When you come to Revelation, because it's prophetic and because it's a vision, we really need to lean toward the symbolic unless there's a really good reason to take it literally. Now, by that, I don't mean that there's not a literal judgment. There is a literal judgment. The symbols always point to something real, underneath um mom and i were, were coming home because of mileage i had to uh, upgrade my car so we're coming home on friday from sioux city from the dealership and i'm i'm driving and i'm looking at the dri- at the the steering wheel and all the little mm-hmm. buttons and there's a little button with a w- there's a little button that's got a symbol on it and the symbol is a little car and two lines and i, ki- I, I kind of wanted to push it but i didn't know what it did and finally it got to a point on 81, we'd come out 20, on 81 where I thought, okay, what does it do? And, and I already, I'd already found out if you drift a little too close to the line, it goes beep, beep, beep. Okay, if you drift a little too close to the line, beep, beep, beep. So just kind of, that's nice. So I turn it on and I push the button. And you, you know, Mom says, maybe it's the eject or something. And <laughs> um, I, I, I start drifting toward the right. I just kind of let it drift toward the right. The steering wheel just goes, Oof. And it, it's, it won't take over and drive for you, but if you start encroaching on the lane, it'll, it'll just give you a little nudge back. Uh, I also found out if you take your hands off the wheel and let it try to drive, it starts flashing, put your hands on the steering wheel! <laughs> there's, a, there's a symbol. The symbol has a meaning. Is my car locked? Oh, Gracie, locked my car. Huh? I, th- I appreciate that, thank you. Um, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a meaning behind the symbol, and the symbol points to something real. Exactly the same when we're looking at symbolic prophecy. There's something real underneath there. There's something real underneath there. doesn't mean that the symbol itself uh, is a literal thing, but what it represents is literal. Um, judgment inevitably involves painful realities. It does for all of us because we all have unsafe family and friends. In in spite of the insistence of of the majority of the world and many who call themselves Christians, God is holy and is going to bring this fallen world to, uh, to full closure. He's going to bring sinful humanity, wicked humanity, to judgment for sin. The word gospel means good news. The good news is so good because the bad news is so bad. Um, the, the attitude that many have of, of universalism, or as the young lady said, you get a second chance. You get a second chance after you die, and you can see everything with perfect clarity. So there's, then there's no point in evangelizing, is there? There's no point in living different, because I get a second chance when it matters. I wonder who came up with that plan. It's not the friend of our souls. It's the enemy of our souls who knows there is no second chance who wants millions and tens of millions of people to show up in utter horror because they thought they had time. So to be clear, there's a judgment to come. The judgment is terrible. Judgment is utterly terrible. The wicked are going to suffer and die because of their sins, and the Lord at the same time is going to redeem his people, not because of their righteousness, but because of his righteousness in them by grace and through faith. As the judgments and Revelation unfold, they're given to us in three sets of seven, seven seals on a scroll. Uh, the seventh seal reveals seven trumpets, and those trumpets each point to something. We're going to look at six of them this morning. The seventh trumpet opens up uh, the seventh uh, or the seven plagues, which are also sometimes called the seven bowls. It begins by saying there are seven plagues, but then it says there are seven bowls that the plagues are poured out from. So seven bowls, seven plagues. What we're seeing in Revelation, then, is this systematic, strategic dismantling of the sinful system of the world. We're seeing it take place over time. We're seeing it take place incrementally. And there, it, you'll see this morning, there is there's significant room in there for repentance, And for faith, if there is anything within human experience that can bring people to repentance apart from the power of God, it will be this. And you'll see this morning whether or not it begins to work. It doesn't, I'll just tell you. But there's an opportunity to see. So let's begin, because it's two chapters, we're just going to read as we go. First five verses of chapter 8. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven, for about half an hour. Um, Revelation has got to be a blast for commentators to write because so much is symbolic and so much is future, their imaginations can begin to think of what does this mean and what does that mean. So there are a lot of variety of reasons or, or, or explanations for what the silence is. I think the silence is the enormity of what's about to take place. It's not silence on God's part, it's silence on heaven's part. If you remember from chapter 6, we've got the four living creatures, we've got 24 elders, we've got millions of angels, we've got an uncountable multitude of saints in heaven, all singing and praising God for his worth and his glory. Jesus, the Lamb, opens the seventh seal, and every created being in heaven shuts up. And I think it's because of the enormity of what the seal is going to reveal. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them in preparation for what's to come in a few verses. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. An interesting statement. Uh, In the earthly tabernacle and in the earthly temple, uh, in the holy place, were several items. Uh, When you went into the holy place, there was a lampstand that had oil lamps on it that that were tended on a daily basis. Jesus is the light of the world. And so there's a lampstand in there. (coughs) There on the opposite side is a table with what was called showbread which is basically just bread. It's not special bread. There was a recipe, but it's not mystical bread. It's just bread. It's made there. It sits for a week. And and after that, then the priests take it and, and eat it. And it's replaced every Sabbath. Jesus is the bread of life. And then there's a veil. And the veil blocks the holy place from the holy of holies. Only the high priest can go into the holy of holies once a year on the Day of Atonement. In, right in front of the veil, right in front of the, the, the curtain where the veil is, is an altar of incense, it's a, it, it, and it represents a place for prayer. It's about 30 inches square. It's 30 or 40 inches high. It's, it's hammered gold. Everything in there is, is made out of gold and, and, uh, and wood. Um, they would place coals in a, in a, in a basin, on top of this and then the priest, while the people were praying outside, the priest comes and puts incense on the coals and the incense begins to, to, to burn and smoke. Incense at the time was, was kind of a resin mixed with spices, the resin burns slowly, be like oil. And so you, you get this dense, aromatic smoke rising up in the holy place that represents the prayers of all those people out there. The priest isn't praying for them. He's, in a sense, bringing their prayers before God. Jesus intercedes for us. He is our high priest. He is the one who, who stands or sits now interceding for us. So this is for free. That first room within the temple, the holy place, is the place where the God-man in heaven is interceding for us and, and granting us light and granting us the bread of life. It's the place where he is serving us in heaven. Well, in heaven, in the, in the, before the Lord, after the, the Lamb opens that seal, there is an altar of incense, and it's there for the prayers of the saints. And the same thing happens, and an angel has, is given much incense, much incense, and incense, a little incense goes a long way. much incense is, you know, more. And he puts it on there, and the incense burns. And the prayers of the people rise to God. Now, it's in heaven. This is a symbol. So this is not literally happening. On earth, it's a picture of the the people praying and God hearing their prayers in heaven. In heaven, I think it's God's acceptance of the prayers. And the incense is his part. I I actually suspect, I can't prove this, so I I should stop the recording until I say this because, you know, I can't prove it. I think that there's a picture of the Holy Spirit in there with the incense, something we can't see, and it's given physical form so John can perceive that it's there, but the Spirit of God also takes our prayers and lifts them to heaven when we don't know what to pray for. So with that then, in verse 5, then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. This is, this is the fire from the altar of incense where the prayers of God's people are offered. He takes that fire and he throws it on the earth. Fire thrown down to the earth is not a good thing. There were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning and an earthquake. When I first saw that that list, peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning and an earthquake, the first thing that came to mind was Mount Sinai. When Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the law, there's lightning and there's thunder and rumblings. There's no earthquake. But there's the other. So I thought, okay, this is... This is kind of cool. And as I continued to read and I continued to study, I came across Psalm 77, verses 18 through 20, where the psalmist says to the Lord in his prayer The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world, the world trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So it's a picture of God delivering Israel from bondage in Egypt through the wilderness, through the sea. And what we're seeing in heaven is exactly the same thing. Remember in chapter 6 where you have the nation Israel sealed And you have all the the multitude in heaven, but you've got believers on earth. So chapter 7 opens up with God's promise that he is going to rescue his sealed people on earth. Which as we come into these judgments is really important. I've met a lot of Christians who are afraid of the judgment of God. They're afraid of the wrath of God. They're afraid of going through the tribulation. What if I go through the tribulation and that's what breaks salvation. It won't break. It won't break. My belief is that those who uh, are in Christ at a point before the tribulation begins will be raptured up, but there are other good scholars who don't believe that that's the case. And what they think is that the church will go through part of the, 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 the tribulation period or all of the tribulation period and be caught up just as Jesus returns. However all of that works out, no Christian goes through the wrath of God. Jesus bore the wrath of God. And right here we have a picture immediately following the the sealing of Israel where there's a picture of God delivering his people out of Egypt. Miraculously. Even though the Egyptians are dying from the plagues, none of the, the Israelites die from the plagues. So... At the very least, those who were sealed during the, revela- during the tribulation period, sealed in Christ, are going to be protected in him. None of them will be lost. Verse 6 says, Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven blazing like a torch and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. These are, This is fresh water now. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood. The word means bitter because many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. So there's the first four trumpet judgments. You'll notice that there is some human suffering in there. There's some human loss from the poisoned water, from ships at sea. If ships at sea sink, there's a loss of life. But you 'll also notice that these judgments are not directed toward people yet. Human suffering is and I don't mean this lightly, but human su- suffering is kind of incidental. The point is to attack the the uh, the earth, trees, sea, sea creatures, fresh waters, sun all of this creation around people is is being impacted, and we keep seeing one third one third one third one third one third one third. I don't think John is probably saying we can divide out all of the trees on the earth right now and exactly to the last tree one third is done I think what he's saying is it's a significant number not quite half it's a big number one third of anything is is, is a big number it really is one third of a cookie may not seem like a lot unless you're the one holding the whole cookie and then one third So what's interesting here is there's a progression. But then there is a a really dire proclamation in verse 13. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. A couple things here. Your Bible might say angel and not eagle. And that just has to do with later manuscripts, Greek manuscripts versus earlier manuscripts that were discovered at a later time. The King James, New King James, and those family, say, angel. Older manuscripts discovered a couple of hundred years ago, most of them have eagle. The idea would be that if it's an eagle, it's an angel with the appearance of an eagle. So the difference isn't significant. And this eagle is pronouncing a message from God. Everything that these creatures are pronouncing is from the Lord. Woe, woe, woe! The the word woe, which in uh, the the Greek word is oue, the Hebrew word is woe. It it's a cry of grief, and lament, and pain. It's not a threat. It's never used as a threat in the Bible ever. Even when Jesus says, Woe to you Pharisees, blind guides, who strain at gnats and swallow camels, he's not threatening them. He's expressing a lament for what they're going to suffer because of their sin. This is important to me. It should be important to you. Because we face a world where people say, I don't want to believe in a God like this. This God is not a sadist. He doesn't torture anybody because it pleases him. Punishment comes and judgment comes, not because God is a sadist, but because he's just. Because he has said sin will be punished. Remember what he said to Adam? Genesis chapter 2, before Eve is created, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. But it's okay, don't worry about it, I'll have a savior, just don't even worry about it. He didn't say that, did he? He just said, in the day you'll eat of it, you'll die. See, there's justice there. That's one of the reasons that, that uh, in Romans 5, Paul says, because Jesus died for us and gave his life for us, we have confidence that we'll be saved from the wrath of God to come. Well, Paul would say we've been delivered from the wrath of God to come. Why would he say we have confidence that we will be saved? Because we're made to die. Because judgment comes upon all humanity. God doesn't ever look at, at mankind, ever, ever. Standing on the earth right now and say, okay, well, I'm going to send these people to hell and I'm going to take these people to heaven. This, this was determined before creation took place. And the determination was with man's sin, all of mankind dies. Even Eve died when Adam ate. Eve was not made from the dirt like man was. Eve was made from Adam's side. Adam was her spiritual head. When he sinned and died, she died, even though she was alive. And so these woes are a cry of God of lament because of the justice that has come. But it's not a cry of God saying, it's too terrible, I won't do it after all. Because he's just. The fifth angel blew his trumpet. And I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. By the way, you'll notice that the next two... The, the, the first four judgments take place from verse 6 to verse 12. The next two judgments take almost all of chapter 9. So these two become very significant. I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to, harm any, not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. In other words, they are told specifically to harm those who don't belong to God. This is not an incidental judgment now. This is coming against those people directly. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings people. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. These creatures that come out of the bottomless pit are demonic. They're being used by God to punish the wicked, exactly like God used the Ninevites and the Amorites and the Philistines to punish Israel when Israel sinned. They'll stand judgment for what they do against people. God is using them in the meantime as an instrument. They're under boundaries. They're under restrictions. They're told not to harm vegetation. And they're told specifically not to harm the people of God. They're told to only harm those who don't have the seal of God on their foreheads, but they're going to harm all who don't have the seal of God on their foreheads. This is a global attack. This is a global judgment. Five months of pain. Five months of torment from which you can't die. There's no relief. You can find all kinds of silly things on YouTube. And one of the silly things you can find on YouTube is a a guy who had determined what the most painful insect insect sting in the world would be. And then he found one and he let it sting him. And within seconds... He regrets his life. Five months. Five months. Now I'm glad I explained that woe to you means a cry of pain and lament, that God is not a sadist, that this is not about torture, this is about justice, because this sounds torturous. But you know what you can do if you don't die? You can repent. So even with this judgment, there's mercy. By the way, do you think that the wicked who are tormented and who are suffering according to this will become kind and share with one another and help one another through their suffering? They're going to turn on each other. They're going to become animals. They're going to become like those who are in concentration camps in World War II who worked with the Nazis and shoved their own people into death chambers. They're going to be like people in refugee camps who betray their own people in order to gain a little bit more. It happened in Japanese prisoner of war camps. It happens whenever you take sinful people and put them in a a, a situation of of extraordinary suffering and, and pressure, there is no sharing. There is no sharing. There's only victimization. Man's sin will be revealed even more through the judgment that is to come. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplate like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have stings or tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails." They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, or Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. Both of those words mean destroyer. Both of those words mean destroyer. He is under orders. He is under restrictions. He's not actually allowed to destroy. He can't kill. I'm actually not sure if this is a reference to Satan or if it's a reference to some other high-level demonic entity. I, I don't know. There's probably disagreement on that like there is with a lot of things in this book. So again, you, you have this terrible time of suffering for five months. The pain that's described as physical pain... Um, People will seek to die and will not be able to die. That seems to be more real to me than symbolic. Whatever the actual physical effect is. Notice verse 12. With this, the first woe has passed. Behold, behold, two woes are still to come. This woe ties into this trumpet judgment. The second woe is not completed until the middle of chapter 11, though. It exceeds past what we see happening within the trumpet judgment. And we are never told the third woe has now passed. I think the third woe is hell. And I think what we see is this escalation of the judgment of God. Verse 13, Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who were bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels, who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year, were released to kill a third of mankind. Let me just stop there and point out that they these four angels had been prepared for this hour, this day, this month, this year. So this judgment of God is not God bearing with man and bearing and bearing and finally just flipping out, losing his temper and saying, enough, I'm done, time to destroy. This is already on his calendar. It's already planned. When it begins, I don't know. We don't know. We're not told. We're not told the decrees of God. We're not we're not commanded to live according to the decrees of, law, of God. We're commanded to live according to the commands of God. We don't know his decrees. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. If you multiply that out, that's 200 million if it's literally a number. I heard their number. This is how I saw the horses in my vision. And those who rode them, they wore breastplates, the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads. And by means of them they wound. Um... I don't know if any of you have Great, late, great Planet Earth or Satan is Alive and Well on Planet Earth, Hal Lindsey's books from the 70s. Feel free to throw those away. Your choice. You probably paid $2 for them back then, but feel free to throw them away. He says this is a 200 million man army from China, probably. That's like, But it's not the riders who do the damage. It's the horses that do the damage. This, this is a picture. It's a vision. It was really weird in the seventies there became this fascination with taking these symbols and and reading them as natural events when i just i just don 't see that these are are horses in any case you 've got this Brutal attack within the second woe, this brutal judgment that comes down. It's a divine judgment carried out by supernatural, wicked forces. We've got four godly angels holding back an overwhelming flood of demonic creatures. The math, again, is 200 million, whether that's the exact number or whether John is simply saying it is an innumerable number. I don't know. Why this here now i i I see that there's a a contrast with the fifth judgment. The fifth judgment is five months of torment that that is not fatal, although it seems it ought to be. People want to die, but they can't. Five months is a weird number too. I don't think that I think that's the only time you see five months in this book. You see threes a lot. You see 42 months at one point, 1260 days, which is 42 months, three and a half years. They did uh, Jewish, Jewish months are 30 days. So periodically they add a, a 13th month to kind of make up for things. Why this? Right now there are seven and a half billion people on the earth, approximately. A third would be two and a half billion. Two and a half billion divided by 200 million gives you 38 people per demonic entity to kill. And I think what we're being shown is a a massive contrast between five months of lingering, unending, feeling like forever torment and a judgment that happens perhaps in days or even hours. That when they're unleashed, they strip around the earth like a fire. In the first one, you've got this lingering judgment where there's opportunity to repent. In the second one, it's over before Twitter knows. That seems to be quite a contrast for me. And that sets people up for extended personal suffering. And it sets people up for this explosive almost violent sudden like like a like a trap snapping death of a third a third a third it's it's mind boggling there're 25,000 people 20 say 24,000 people in Norfolk cuz math is hard that means 8,000 people in the next 24 hours just dying No war, no poisons, no violence, just dead. If five months of lingering suffering that you can't die from doesn't get your attention, maybe this will. And what happens? We get a progress report in verses 20 and 21. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk, nor do they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. No repentance. No repentance. The wicked will not repent. They'll have ample reason to do so. They'll have ample motivation to do so, but they won't give up their sins. They, they won't give up their idolatry. They won't give up their murders. They won't give up their sorceries. That word sorcery, by the way, comes from the Greek word pharmakia, which becomes pharmacy, and it doesn't refer simply to kind of Ouija board witchcraft. It, it refers to spiritism that's based on mind-altering drugs. They won't give that up. They won't give up their sexual immorality. They won't give up their thefts. If if the wicked were able to turn themselves away from their sin and toward Christ, if the wicked were able to spark faith within their own hearts simply by making a decision based on their circumstances, if the wicked were able to end their hatred of God and make a decision to love him, they would do it here they would do it here. Because this is apocalyptic judgment. This isn't, well, bad things happen to everybody. That This is, <laughs> to quote Ghostbusters, this is really hand-to-God stuff. This is the end. If, if there was a way for people to transform their own lives, they'd be doing it right now, right here. But they don't. Because dead is dead. Spiritually dead is spiritually dead. Spiritually blind is spiritually blind. It's not that God says, if your repentance didn't come from me, I don't care that you repented. There is no repentance apart from him. We're not capable of it. We're not capable of it now and we're not capable of it with the greatest motivation God could ever give. You could almost paint him as, or see him standing in heaven begging mankind to turn himself. Or it's just going to get worse. But man can't. It isn't simply that they won't. They can't. Linda and Grace did a, a, an excellent job with Deborah. I came in the last 10 or 15 minutes. It, it wasn't that she was saying, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, okay, I see, okay, so that goes there, okay, but I don't believe that. She is bouncing around and pulling up the most bizarre things. We're talking about Jesus being God, Jesus being Jehovah, and she starts thumbing around and she finds it. She's got, "Baba, he was sent. He was sent. He was sent. Sent," it says sent. And I said, "Okay, what does sent signify?" Well, sent. A good Jehovah's Witness, she's not a good Jehovah's Witness, would say, "Well, if he's sent, he can't be the same as." They don't understand the Trinity. They don't understand subordination within the Trinity that's voluntary, even though they're co-equal. They're all the same essence as God. She was unable to hear it. She was unable to hear it. She's She's not able to hear what you're saying and say, but I don't believe that. She's not even able to hear. So when you're with somebody who's spiritually dead and, say, and you say, you need to know God created everything and it was very good, but man chose to sin. And when man chose to sin, he died spiritually. And he died physically. And the physical death is a sign of the spiritual death that's coming and it's eternal. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and Jesus died. And if you'll put your faith in him, he will wash you clean of sin and make you his child and give you his spirit and you'll become a new kind of person. And they'll say, Oh, I believe in evolution. And it's like, what? (laughs) Well, you said God created. I don't believe God created. They get caught in the most bizarre things because they're dead. You don't have the ability to explain to somebody who's spiritually dead how to understand the gospel. All you can do is speak it. And if the Holy Spirit doesn't do that work, it will not happen. And if he does that work, it will happen. Because he doesn't simply awaken up the ability to believe. He gives us faith. And if he doesn't do that, we're all going to hell. We can't save ourselves. So I I want you to keep a couple things in mind as we close. Give me five minutes. When God brings life, it's a beautiful thing. Because it's utterly unexpected. It is utterly out of place. When he put life in your heart, when he put life in your heart, he went to not just the Sahara Desert, he went to the moon. He went to a place that is completely incompatible with life. And he put a garden there. He put life there. There's no reason for life to ever exist there. The Bible says, for while we were... While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, which means we hated him, we were his enemies, we would throw him off of his throne if we could. Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. Justified doesn't mean made righteous, it means declared righteous. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. If, let me read it again, if since then now we have been justified by his blood, you've been declared righteous with the righteousness of Christ, much more shall you be saved from the wrath of God to come. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So God's salvation, in a sense, is progressive. We say we were saved, we are being saved, we shall be saved. But those who were saved are being saved. And those who were saved and are being saved will be saved. We don't start out with a million like Gideon, start out with 30,000, cut it down to 10,000, cut it down to 300. And it's because of his work. It's because of the life that he gives us. Once a sinner has been born again by the Holy Spirit, they're guaranteed peace with God. I was thinking about Romans 5.1. You know what it says. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And I started thinking... The peace is not in my control. The peace doesn't come from me. I'm I'm the criminal. I'm the ugly one. I'm the hater. Peace doesn't come from me. It comes from Him. If I have peace with God, it means God is at peace with me first. There are times I need to know that. I need to know that God is at peace with me. I may not have peace with him, but he is at peace with me. So four things I want you to remember. Number one, we all deserve the judgment that's to come. We didn't deliver ourselves. We're not better. That judgment will come upon all who are not sealed with his name. God is not going to punish the really bad people, but give the only sort of bad people a break. He doesn't say that. Second, the only way to escape this judgment is to run in humility to the judge. We are, we are born running from the judge. We're born running from, from the judge. We hate him. We want nothing to do with him. He's like the lion roaring. And you run when the lion roars, and you don't run toward. But in, but in salvation, you run to the roarer. That's where the safety is. You go to the Lord Jesus and trust his gospel. Third, as we see, the Father elects to salvation, Jesus obtains salvation on the cross, and the Holy Spirit applies it to the sinner, and all of this is by the grace of God. If if human suffering and deprivation and agony could cause people to repent, you'd see it taking place in Revelation. And it says it again in a different place. They would not repent. We don't like that. That's offensive to us. It's offensive to me. I want to think I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. I'm free enough. But the reality is, is without him choosing me, I would never have chosen him. This adoption that he does comes upon us when we're dead. He raises us and brings us home like Lazarus. Just like Lazarus, the only thing Lazarus could do in that tomb was stink. We can't do much more. So evangelism is first and foremost God's work, not our work. We proclaim the message, but we don't change hearts. I can't break through to anybody's heart. I've tried. I've I've, I've tried uh, I've tried soft pedaling to try and lure people in. That doesn't work. I've, I've tried going on the attack. That doesn't work. See, the reality is evangelism doesn't work. We just have to get rid of that idea. What evangelism technique do you think works? It doesn't work. Evangelism does not work. Christ works. Jesus works. The Father works. The Son works. Our job is to proclaim uh, the, the, the gospel is not the message of the church to the world about God. The, the, the gospel is God's message through the church to the world about himself. So we're not going and saying, let me bring you in, and when you become part of us, you can be, become part of him. We go and say, I talk to your God, and he has a message for you. You need to go talk to him. What's he want? Take it up with him. Take it up with him. Go to the word and take it up with him. It's not our message. So we proclaim the gospel. He's the Savior. We're just directing sinners to him. And finally, fourth, Christians are entrusted with the message of reconciliation. It's not our message. It's God's message. So we have no right to adjust it. I've tried to adjust it to try and get people to come along, and it doesn't work, and so I gave it up. I'm not proud of that, but I gave that up. And, and we're, we're not to add to it by human rituals. And we're not to take anything away from it. If you share the gospel with somebody and you don't tell them that there's a judgment to come, you're not sharing the gospel. If you share the gospel and you tell them it's dependent upon them, you're not sharing the gospel. You tell them we're born in sin, we're born dead, I was. He gave me life, and I trusted him. And if you'll believe in him, repent of your sins, which he commands, he'll receive you. Oh, so you're saying I've got sins. Yeah. Well, how do you know I've got sins? Let me let me guess. See, so we don't argue those points. We just present it. We just present it. We all deserve judgment. The only way to escape the judgment is to go to the Lord. God is the Savior, not us. We're entrusted with a message that we're not allowed to edit. Father, we thank you for your love for us for sending the Son for sending your Spirit we thank you for choosing us And, and that right there shuts our mouths from any sense of self worth or value or anything because you chose us because it pleased you to choose us not because of anything within us so we gratefully acknowledge that you are God. These are hard chapters in Revelation. They leave my heart heavy as I read and study and as I preach. And they leave our hearts heavy as we hear. Your justice is is not ever going to overcome your love, and your love is never going to cancel out your justice. And so for the sake of those we know and love who don't know you, we beg you to save them. We beg you to look in your book of life and find their names written there. We beg you to have mercy. If we can be of use in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, then so be it. Show us how to do that. Give us the time and the opportunity. Give us the right words to say, Lord, I praise you that... Somebody only needs to hear the gospel one time and your spirit can bring it back 50 years later and produce the fruit of eternal life. Nobody's saved because they hear it 30 times. They're saved because you save them. Fill our hearts with the gospel, Lord, and fill our mouths with the gospel as well. Let us learn to tell it simply and clearly without editing. We thank you for this day. We lift up those who are not with us this morning and ask for your mercy to be upon them and your blessing upon them as they're with family and they're with friends. And if any are sick, touch them and heal them and bring us bring them back to us. We love you, Lord Jesus, and we thank you for this time. In your name we pray. Amen.